Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to work in global public affairs, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a 2020 grad who's a senior coordinator in global public affairs at Weber Shandwick, one of the world's leading global public relations firms with offices in major media business and government capitals around the world. But before I introduce you to Esme Stribling-Hoff, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that features career advice and insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals like Esme who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there. Now, my percolating public affairs lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Esme Stribling-Hoff. After she graduated from Wellesley in 2020, during the height of the pandemic, Esme scored a job as an associate at Laurel Strategies a global business advisory and strategic communications firm that works for the world's most visionary executives, corporations, and institutions. After less than a year, Esme was promoted to a senior associate, a role she held just for a few months before moving to Weber Shandwick as a senior coordinator in global public affairs. During her time at Wellesley, Esme was a resident assistant, a student representative to Wellesley's Board of Trustees, and she was a student representative on the Wellesley College Strategic Planning Committee. She also had a couple of summer internships, and we're going to learn more about how she got them and whether she thinks they actually helped her land a full-time job after she graduated. Esme, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am, Andrea. Thank you for having me. Oh, my goodness. It's my pleasure. My nose is kind of running. My throat seems like a little froggy today. But hopefully you have a lot of focus. (laughs) I don't know. I was going to say most of the time when I'm reading these introductions, I feel like right? It's kind of flowing. Today, it feels a little rough. I don't know about you. How are you feeling? Yeah, well, it's spring in Washington, so we're all drowning in pollen, but uh, I'm feeling pretty good. 
Awesome. And do you drink coffee? I didn't see you raise your mug. I do. I I am in between mugs at the moment, but I am always caffeinated. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. And what is your go-to these days? Oh, just black. Honestly, I'm, I like to start. Yeah, I know it's, it's a, Maybe a bolder political statement. I, I, you know, everything's kind of political right now. Okay. It's, yeah, it's what I like to start. Yeah. Start the day with. Fantastic. So I thought we could kick things off today, Esme, by talking about what you are doing right now at Weber Shandwick. Your title is Senior Coordinator for Global Public Affairs. And you and I were chatting before. I pressed play on record and you were saying, gosh, that title is super fancy, but in reality, what? So yeah, senior coordinator for global public affairs. It sounds really fancy. It sounds really glamorous. It is a very nice way of saying, have you set up the agenda for the call? Have you booked the conference room? Do you have, are you giving all of our global leaders what they need? Do you have what we call a cape stack, which is just all of the nuts and bolts of how we do our job. And that's being organized, being responsive, being the face that says, I don't know, but I'll go find it for you and helping keep the trains running. Okay. So it sounds to me like it could just as easily be called an assistant, like maybe an executive assistant. But the beauty of this is that you get to be a fly on the wall. Yeah. And that's really, that's just been an amazing opportunity to watch people who have been doing this work for decades, engage with problems, engage with ideas. I've been supporting a lot of the thought leadership that the public affairs practice puts out. And thought leadership is such a fancy way of saying like essays or write-ups on what's going on in the world. But it's useful for us to think about you know, why is it that we're here? Why is it that we're doing this work? And it's that's been a joy to participate in and to watch people who do their job really well be in action. So as a senior coordinator for global public affairs, and we don't have your job description in front of us right now, but if you were to try to talk to another 20-year-old and help them to understand how what they've done in the classroom and maybe even in their extracurricular activities transfers into the kinds of responsibilities that you have right now. I think that's one of the biggest kind of mind shifts for a lot of students is to appreciate how transferable their classroom, college, whatever they majored in skills are into entry-level jobs. Could you help them connect the dots, Esme? Yeah. So I think the best skills that I learned in college, I'm realizing the curriculum matters and it's important and it's fun to be able to say, like I, I in my bachelor's, I learned about this author, but that's not really the what you're learning when you're learning skill sets. You're learning how to research, you're learning how to ask questions, you're learning how to organize a lot of intangible ideas into one narrative. And that means like 
I got really good at Google um, when I was writing that that final. And I learned how to find the author on this page and, you know, cite this source. And so now as I'm, you know, putting together, as I said, a thought leadership, it's, it's writing an essay. It's, it's looking at policy that's going on in the Hill and putting it together in, in a thoughtful way. It's reaching out to a professor and saying, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm swamped. I have a couple of different projects that are coming together at the same time. Can I have an extra 48 hours on this paper? Because if you think you hit your deadlines all the time in the professional world, like imagine trying to explain to a high school student that don't have to be perfect in college. And it's the same in your early career. I learned that you're all human everybody makes mistakes. And the entry level job is really about learning how to learn just the same way that college is about learning how to learn at a higher academic setting. Oh my gosh. That is so wonderfully said. So could you break down in the simplest way possible, what the range of your responsibilities are? You mentioned thought leadership, you mentioned booking conference rooms. You mentioned, I guess, circulating agendas. But what else would you say that you're doing? And then what would you say has not been in your job description that have been some of your favorite things that you've learned? Yeah, so... I'll start by saying favorite is not the right word for what I'm going to share just because the topic is fairly heavy. But I started uh, at Weber in October of 2021. I was about six months or five months into the job of learning how the practice operates, learning who all the, the players are, you know, making sure do I know, have I connected with our lead in Brussels? Um, does he know my name? Make sure that I am <laughs> realizing that Singapore is fairly far away. And when you send somebody an email at you know 11 o'clock in the morning, it's 11 o'clock in the evening, their time. So knowing, knowing how to be respectful and responsible to other people in your network is really important. But, you know, as I was just getting my arms around all of that work, the Ukraine war started. And we I had been helping two exceptional colleagues put together some tracking, just, you know, who, who's saying what, what are the political voices saying, what are the business voices saying in the lead up to that invasion. And then when it started, those same colleagues and I basically had to build out our response for the global firm in 48 hours. And that was a really time intensive, a really energy intensive experience was connecting with people, you know, the chairman of the firm, the founder who is fairly legendary, Jack Leslie, but being with people who were at the top of their game, running full speed, trying to respond to what was a really significant crisis that all of our clients suddenly had an interest in. And so I was putting together briefings every 12 hours for the first seven weeks of the war. And that was... It, that was an exceptional process that I feel very proud of looking back because it was really beyond the importance for businesses to be counseled well on what their response should be. It was really helping a lot of people get, the term is get smarter or know what's going on because it was not on the radar of consumer junk food brands. It was not on the radar of athletic wear companies and, you know, or, or even people in technology or, or other sectors. And suddenly everybody had to know what was going on and they needed to know right away. And so that was 
that was a big part of my spring. No one could have predicted it, let alone put it in the job description for somebody who's ultimately a junior member of the team. I'm so so glad that you laid out the variety of clients that a firm like Weber Shandwick works with. Could you explain, Esme, why a junk food or snack food company or a company that works in tech would need to know or want to know about what's happening in a place like Ukraine? Why is that relevant to them? And how does a firm like Weber Shandwick help these types of clients in terms of navigating a war in a part of the world where they may or may not have business? Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that is the question of the day, Andrea, because it's something that the whole business world and the whole world is really trying to figure out is what is the role of business in geopolitics? What is the role of business in politics? But for the Ukraine war, and I, you know, I use junk food offhand and <laughs> I'll hear about it later. But these companies, at least for the Russia war, were really significant symbols of the a kind of peace and a kind of understanding that emerged after the Cold War, because it was the most visible way that the average person could see that the Soviet Union had gone away and that we were united as a global network. And so when this war started, a lot of these brands who were symbols of free expression, who were symbols of Western values, had to make a decision about whether they could continue doing business in a country that was committing atrocities. And ultimately, Jeffrey Sonnenfeld at Yale, if you all are interested, um, really created the master list that we all focused on, tracked these companies' decisions to leave. And they were losing, choosing to lose To leave Russia. To leave, to leave Russia. And they were choosing to lose business. And so suddenly you have multinational companies who were faced with the prospect of one, you know, losing the Russian business and, and choosing to put their values first but also having to take care of their people in Ukraine. And that meant getting their families out. It meant uh, relocating their business operations. It meant providing, frankly, emotional support for people who were suddenly dealing with full crisis in their lives and in their communities. And so helping them communicate about that, helping them understand, well, you know, what are the boundaries of how we can help? You know, we're not, we're not government, you know, we're not the state department. We're not, you know, (laughs) right. Right. We're not. And, and we did, you know, and we did help nonprofits or NGOs communicate with those companies, communicate with governments, uh, get people, you know, emergency people on the ground, but it's that, whole swirl all at once. I want to stop right here because I think what you have succeeded in doing, Esme, is bringing to life what a lot of students read about if they're a poli-sci major or a global politics major or an econ major. You read these history books (laughs) or you read articles, but what you got to experience is like real time realpolitik and the business side of it. And I think many Gen Zers like you 
care so much about the values of the company where they work. And I'm just wondering what, whether or not that has kind of helped make the long days, which I'm sure you experienced for sure when the war began, but that you continue to experience, whether they make them more meaningful. Absolutely. And they make it more meaningful, not only because I care, but because I am working in a place that also cares what I think. It's not guaranteed that you come into an entry-level position and your voice is heard, but Weber really does put an emphasis on listening to Gen Z, partly because you all, and I I will speak directly to your audience, uh, Andrea, Everyone wants to know what you're thinking. Everyone wants to know your opinion. Everyone wants to know your feelings. And that, for all of the backlash you may see on social media of, oh, millennials and Gen Z are killing this industry, or they're so, da da da, you are becoming the workforce. And when you become the workforce, you become the employees that help your business grow. And so your feelings on issues, your support, um, you know, resources that you may need or questions you may have become essential for a company to run successfully. And so that it, it matters when you suddenly say, well, I want to work for a company that really values human rights. I want to work for a company that is really invested in the green transition. I want to work for a company that is really focused on being a good player in the communities that they're in because you will be impactful in those conversations and making that change. You mentioned the fact that you did help some nonprofits with their messaging. So were they clients, like clients that had come to Weber to get help with their external communications? Yeah. So we work with clients kind of across the board. We do external communications, which is helping other people who maybe don't live in the industry talk about the brand, helping if it's a nonprofit, helping people understand their mission, you know, who they're trying to serve. But we also do internal communications, which is how does a CEO talk to their employees about something that's going on in the world? How does a CEO talk to other CEOs or other partners? that they are in, you know, working with and really helping them shape their message in a way that's consistent, in a way that's authentic, and in a way that achieves their goals over time. You mentioned that you work with some of the best of the best. How do you support them? Because clearly they're the ones that come up with the strategy. And then how do you support them in communicating that strategy to the client. What are the job functions that you have that help in this process? Yeah. So, and I think to to bring it back to the skills you learn in college, it's being really organized. It's having an awareness for what the timeline is on a project. It's having a an ability to be proactive in some research. So if you're going into a meeting, being able to share a, a page that has all of the resumes or the, the bios of the people who are going to be in that meeting with the person leading it, hugely helpful so that they know their backgrounds. You know, It's reminding your boss often about internal deadlines 
for things or so-and-so needs to review this. And if we wanted it out on, you know, the 13th, then that means that we need to have it in their hands by the fifth, like all of those nuts and bolts that, that really do make a project successful. And how did you learn how to do that? Because I think sometimes, and I unfortunately did not have the benefit, perhaps because I spent the first 20 years of my career as a journalist before I moved into the private sector, into corporate, where there were meetings, (laughs) where there was a reporting chain. And you don't always have the good fortune to report to a really good manager or somebody who has that ability to kind of break down into bite-sized pieces what they need you to do. So how did you learn, Esme, that you needed to get your supervisor's attention on certain things in the first place? Well, the first thing I'll say is you learn by messing up. (laughs) You learn by it not going well the first time. And you also learn by watching other people do it. So after a while, one of the biggest things I say to people who are in college or, or we I commit, talk about with my peers is that when you're in college, the world chunks it up into bite-sized pieces for you. It goes by semester. It goes by midterms, by finals. And so there is a natural rhythm to the way that college works. And then once you're done, you're done. But in the work world, everything is organic, everything is flowing. And there will be projects that preceded you to the job. And there will also be projects that you leave when you leave a job. And so you're the first thing that I try to do when I'm understanding a new work stream is to understand, you know, what is the rhythm of this work? Is it something that's fairly kind of low level and consistent? Is it something that, you know, they just bring us in when they want a big project done and then they go away for a while and we don't hear from them. So getting a sense of the rhythm of the work helps you understand, well, how do I make this smaller and more manageable? So could you give us an example, Esme, of a time When you were assigned to do something and you drop the ball and how you manage that situation. Yeah. So my, in my first job, I was supporting bringing together a nonprofit and a partner who wanted to be, who wanted to be a philanthropic partner who wanted to be engaged with their work and, and really add value wherever he could, because he was very passionate about the issue. And I hadn't had the experience of understanding, well, what needs to happen between, you know, the, the, the handshake or the, so it's a pleasure to be connected with you in this partnership being the end goal and all of the things that kind of needed to happen beforehand in order to make sure that everybody involved felt comfortable and confident going into that meeting. And so I didn't connect with our scheduler as as early as I could have. And I didn't confirm with our client lead that this was the order of operations that needed to happen in order to get done. And so we approached this call and realized that, you know, nobody had, we hadn't spoken to either party first, and that we hadn't been in touch with everyone around setting the agenda well. And I realized in that moment, when I was thinking, oh, gosh, you know, what went wrong is like, that is my job as somebody who has the time and the 
and the responsibility to see the wide angle lens. And that's why it's so important when your leader or your boss is focused on maybe the minutia of, you know, finance or, you know, new business or your, you know, another high stakes assignment, helping them with the, the foundation of that project with the tangible A plus B is C is the thing that keeps a project moving and keeps the confidence high. Had they broken that down for you ahead of time? No. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I'm just going to tell you right now, that wasn't a fail on your part. That was the supervisor's fault. How are you supposed to intuitively know this? How can you ask the right questions when you've never done it before? So I'm sorry, my friend, that is not on you. But before we flash back to your first job out of school, I want to ask you about the intangibles of being in a supporting role, because I think we'd all agree that a lot of your job is keeping the trains running on time. But being in the room, being in meetings, you could see that as just being, ugh, yawn, one meeting after another. What are the intangibles that you've picked up from listening to some of the senior people at Weber Shandwick talk about solving whatever the problem is or achieving whatever the outcome is? that you need to achieve for various clients? Yeah, there are, there are a ton. And I think the lesson is just experience is something that you earn and being able to apply past mistakes, past examples to current problems is really important. But the, the most deft tool that I've seen some of my bosses use is asking questions. And they will sit and they will listen and they will be quiet at the beginning. And then they will really be able to digest, you know, what was said and ask a question that was really smart, not just in terms of understanding the topic, but understanding how the organization works, what has not been considered, what might be the the problem with what was proposed and reframe the conversation in a way that gets whoever is in the room thinking about the problem differently, often to the benefit of of the solution. And that's something that I really want to hone and and learn from is being able to take a breath, to not freak out, especially in, in crisis communications, especially in social media. When you are under the visibility of a Twitter storm, it's really easy to get way up in your head to be really panicked, to be worried about, oh, I have to do this now. I have to make this you know, choice right away. So to have people lead by example and say, well, let's take a breath. Let's take a step back. Let's really look at this calmly. It's going to be okay. And then walk through the problem is, is a really invaluable experience. Do you think that you have learned more in your professional life thus far by doing or by watching and listening? It's a really, that's a great question because it's certainly a bit of both. I think that we put a premium on doing, which is important. It is really critical. You're not going to learn how to do something right until you've done it and maybe done it wrong. But I would also say 
that professional development comes from watching other people do it well as well. Watching, you know, what, what was it about that person who led that meeting that was really effective, that was very clear? What was it about the instruction given that made me think, oh, wow, not only are you explaining this project in a way that I really understand, you're taking the time to actually teach me how to do something. And you're doing it in a way that makes me feel part of the team. You're responding, you know, somebody who responds to emails, and even if it's just, thanks for this, sorry, my plate's been full, you know, we'll get back to you at X time, like showing that leadership and watching when it's done well, it sets the groundwork for how you want to be as a leader and, and what you want your career to look like. Absolutely. And as you're describing that, Esme, I'm thinking, you know, so often we hear about the importance of identifying mentors, whether it's in your workplace or just in your professional network. And I think sometimes it doesn't have to be a formal ask. You can have someone be your mentor without their even knowing it. Yeah. I think that's really true. And I, I envision a lot of, you know, if you have younger siblings or you were the younger sibling and they were a teenager and they were super cool and you, you know, you wanted to be like them. I think the workplace works fairly similarly where you, you either are realizing like, I want to be that person when I grow up because they've really got it together. Or you turn around and you realize, oh, wow, you know, this person really looks up to me. And gosh, I should be setting that, you know, example, or, or how am I behaving in a way that they either are really attractive to that? Or am I behaving in a way that I would want other people to emulate coming up behind me? So it, it really is, it's about how you show up, I think is, is 90% of the work and, and your not only how you show up at the beginning, but how you show up in the middle and how you show up at the end. And, and all three of those working in tandem are important. Prior to working at Weber, you worked at another company called Laurel Strategies, which is a global business advisory and strategic communications firm. So kind of similar to Weber. And you started off as an associate in July, 2020. That was just, I guess, a month or so after you graduated. And this was during the height of the pandemic. Do you remember, Esme, how you found that opportunity? Yeah, I uh, I found it through LinkedIn, and so that was you know not to not to plug or not plug any places. I I definitely recommend signing up for job boards. I if if you're interested, my background is political science, so I'll share um, Daybook is a resource, and it's it's about five dollars a month, but uh, you can start for free. That is just a job board for public policy positions or positions in in that space. But just being on those sites regularly and understanding what's the landscape of this industry? What are people looking for right now? Helped me find that role. There were a lot of roles in July 2020 for crisis management, you know, crisis response. And, you know, you have to wonder why. Um, it It was not terribly hard to see. But if you're looking at those boards consistently, if you're, first of all, the LinkedIn algorithm will start to kind of pick up like what you're interested in. So that's why it's a little bit important to stay engaged. But generally, like, it also helps you understand where the industry that you want to be in is going. There's a spat of a couple of weeks where everybody's hiring a senior position. Maybe that means that the whole world is pivoting 
you know, in a certain direction or, you know, and then often afterwards, well, you need people to, to support those teams that they're creating. So you can start to see what the cycle looks like. So I don't know if you know this, but the fact that you broke through using a job board puts you in like three to 5% of job seekers because most people do not find jobs cold applying on a job board. Yeah. Did well, you have yeah. any other relationships that helped you get in? Yes. And so I'll say that I did have a relationship with the founders or I have a family connection, but I didn't know it at the time. And that was sort of a, a serendipitous, I would say it was, it was effort meets opportunity because even if you have a great network, if you're not using them, if you're not engaging with them independently of whomever might've introduced you, you're not really using the network and you're also missing opportunities to define yourself outside of it. So it's, it's important to, you should be doing the work regardless of the connection because the connection can only add, but yeah. Yeah. I, I, I might respectfully disagree and I'll tell you why, because I think so many students start experiencing unbelievable frustration and disillusionment Yeah, because they will spray and pray, right? They put out so many applications, the fast apply, the this, the that. And when they hear crickets, it starts to affect their self-esteem. And I would say unnecessarily affect their self-esteem because I do think half or three quarters of the of the experience in applying is having somebody who knows you put a face to the resume and start advocating on your behalf. Yeah, and and I will say I agree with that when I say network. I don't mean you have to know somebody who works in that position already, or you don't have to be super connected to the CEO or, you know, we both went to college. Like that's not the the point. And I would definitely agree with you that having people in your corner who can advocate for you, who, who know the industry that you want to be in, maybe that's a, a college professor. Maybe that's somebody you did some volunteer work for. Maybe that's somebody you interned under like cultivating those relationships are so critical to feeling like you can still feel successful when you're stuck and to also have somebody to go back to when you're feeling stuck or when you're feeling like, oh, either I'm not getting bites or, you know, maybe I'm in a good job place now, but I'm kind of looking for something different. Like staying with those people after you graduate, after you've moved on from that program helps you feel like you have somebody who you can kind of take a break with and, and figure out what's next. Because I think the reality, Esme, is that the people who are breaking through, who are getting the jobs, have had some kind of relationship, whether it's somebody that went to the same school or somebody who's from their same hometown, or they have three degrees of separation, they've managed to connect and then becomes an advocate to put your resume at the top of the pile. Yeah. And that is what oftentimes makes a big difference. 
I, I wholly agree. And, and I would also say that that person, you know, I we're living in obviously an age of inequality now, and that's, that's a really challenging thing and it can, it can be really frustrating. And so I think just reemphasizing the point that that person does not to be, that does not need to be a super glitzy glam person in order to be, help you feel successful and help you find the role that fits you. It's just somebody who knows you really well. It's somebody who's been in your corner before, maybe at a lower stakes thing. It's the professor that you maybe cried to in office hours, but developed a really strong relationship with. Like that person is going to be the person that it propels you to where you want to be more than just, oh, I know so-and-so. It's, it's who, who have you really developed a relationship with? And that can be your advocate. And they can also be people that you've done a 20 minute informational interview with that you found using LinkedIn. Yeah. And they're in or were in a role that you find interesting. And maybe they're not even at that company anymore, but because you impress them in that 20 minute conversation, they're flagging your resume to their former supervisor. That can also make a difference. Doesn't have to be somebody who is the CEO or has a C-suite title. They can have been an associate or a coordinator who you speak with. And then they can advocate on your behalf. Speaking of being an associate, when you were at Laurel, you worked on press releases, talking points, opinion editorials, public statements. How did you learn how to do that? I think really through listening and really from being guided by an exceptional to your point mentor that I was lucky to work with there and getting his knowledge and experience and, and being able to make the time to be purposeful about stepping back from the work and understanding, you know, what the ask was and cultivating a relationship with people you work closely with in terms of like, Hey, I need 10 minutes every morning with you to understand what the agenda is for the day. Or we, we just got out of that meeting and it was a little unclear what the ask was, or it was a little unclear what next steps look like. Can we talk that through developing that relationship helps you do your job better, helps you support them better. But it also to, to our earlier point, like he is now somebody I go to for advice or to, to check in with, even though we've both since moved on from the company and he's still a relationship that I value very much. I love that you brought up that example. What advice do you have for our young listeners around how they can connect with senior leadership as a junior team member? That person can be your supervisor or they could be someone else's supervisor because it's intimidating for a new grad, especially to approach someone who is older than they are to get their advice? Yeah, I, I think that the best way that I've done it is to, I like to call it fail loud, which is if you're intimidated by something or you're not totally sure how it's going to work out, you can either fail quietly, which is to not ask the question, is to kind of slink away from the conversation, is to not really put yourself forward, or you can fail loud, which is to ask the question to engage in the conversation, maybe say something that's a little bit naive, a little bit, you know, 25, but you, you have the latitude to do that as a, as a young grad in a way that you actually don't 
the more you get into your career. The stakes get higher. You have different obligations at home. But when you're new at a, and you're entry level, you actually have the opportunity to ask the the quote unquote dumb question. And it will sometimes spark something in a senior person that maybe they haven't seen before. I was talking to a, another who's a executive vice president or, or very high in the firm this morning about this call. And he realized, well, you know, I hope I'm giving you this advice. I, I don't know if I've looked at this from an entry level perspective in, you know, 10 years or, and so it sparks something in them about what it is that made them fall in love with this work in the first place. And it makes them want to engage with you more deeply. I love the whole idea of failing loud. Because first of all, it's not failing. (laughs) It's super smart, super smart to ask questions and to clarify things. So kudos to you for figuring that out. And you're also engendering so much goodwill because when you ask questions to try to clarify something, oftentimes it's going to pull from the person that you're asking questions of to help them learn how to better explain things to junior associates. And they're going to realize, my gosh, Esme was really paying attention, really paying attention. And here's a bright young woman who wants to learn, who's hungry to learn. So it only reflects well on you. We are just a few weeks away from graduation for the class of 2023, Esme. And I would like to flash back to this time just three years ago for you. You were a member of the class of 2020 and you majored in political science. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? (laughs) Well, Andrew, I think that, you know, for our particular cohort, it's less, did I know what I wanted to do when I graduated in January of 2020? And did I know what I wanted to do in March 2020? And did I know what I wanted to do in May? Because the the truth is that landscape changed pretty dramatically. And we were very unsure of what the world looked like. And I, you know, take a step back and say to anybody who is a member of the class of 23, know that you've done something exceptional because your education was entirely disrupted by something outside of your control. And you people were not prepared to support you maybe in the best way that that we could have, that we know now works or doesn't work. People are figuring out what does virtual learning look like? What does hybrid in-person look like? So the fact that you've made it, or even the fact that you maybe need to pause or change, but you're still trying is something you should be extremely proud of because it's not easy and it's not normal either. So it's it's not, this is not standard practice, but it does mean that you've developed life skills that maybe it has taken other people 10 years to learn how to be adaptable, how to be resilient in the face of change, how to kind of just take the opportunity and try something on. Because, you know, when I was thinking about like my first job, it was less at a certain point, like, oh, I needed a job, the job, I need to make money. That was all true. But more of, oh my gosh, I'm stuck in the house. And I just with the news cycle, that was crazy. And I needed something to focus on. And having that first job helped me focus on what it is that I wanted to do to do in the world. It, maybe it was still political science realm. Maybe it was learning about business in a different way. But 
it helped me center myself and ride out that very challenging time. And I think that that is something that I will take with me for the rest of my career and something that you as the class of 23 can certainly take with you into your first job because it's, it's a super suit compared to what a lot of other people might've had in their toolkit to begin with. Mm, So well said. So do you, could you have predicted in March or April that you were going to go into public affairs and communications? Not really. I had done an internship in communications with a nonprofit in college and it was very opaque. I I didn't really know like, you know, well, why is it that you put on a press release the name of the city that you're reporting from? And so I sort of set it aside and then I did an internship at a government relations firm. And that was curious just because I had worked in the technology space and that was something that I had not touched at all in school. So it seeded an awareness for the industry, but I didn't, I I didn't think I was ever going to visit it, visit it again. And then, you know, I took this job right out of school and I realized like technology is everywhere. And all of those policy issues that, you know, people on the Hill were talking about two years ago, well, they're here now and they're being felt by the private sector and they're being felt by, by consumers. And suddenly it did make sense why I would be drawn to communications as a first starting place and, and something that I can really grow in. So trying things out and just getting a sense of something will, will help you kind of follow the path into like, oh, this is a real career. This is at least a really great launching point for, for what I want to be doing in the world. As you know, as may so many students, especially seniors, feel uh, incredible stress around especially that first job because they feel that, oh my gosh, if I don't get that first job right, the rest of my career is going to be messed up. Your three jobs into your professional journey here, what would you like to say to them? So, well, two and, and a title change, but I think that it's, it matters how you start. And that's, that's true, but not necessarily in a way that, you know, it's a make or break or that you're, you know, if you mess up your first job, your whole career is over. It matters mostly as the first data point in, in what you want to do and who you want to be. And sometimes that's, oh, I really didn't like this element of the job. And I don't really want to explore that, that piece of this field or, you know, I really, I came out of my first experience realizing I wanted to be at a big global firm. I wanted to be in some place institutional, someplace that had a bit more of a marketing versus consulting edge to it. And that has been really successful for me in honing, you know, the spaces that I want to work in. So it's, it's very hard to mess up your first job because it's just an information intake to, to what it is you actually want to be doing. You've mentioned some of the internships that you had when you were in school. You had one after your freshman year, another after your sophomore year. And it looks like they were both somewhat related to a communications job function. Did you know or were you thinking at that point that you wanted to go into communications or public affairs? Or did those internships influence? the decision you made after you graduated? Yeah, I, 
I think the internships really ended up influencing um, the job search. And I would say that and maybe communications is more like this than other spaces, but I was really drawn to the content more than the the mechanics of the industry. We I don't believe Wellesley has a communications major. And so I was really focused on, oh, well, you're, you're tracking policy. That's kind of interesting. Or tell me about, you know, what does it mean that we need a rural broadband strategy? Or, you know, what does it mean to be doing crisis response work? And so taking that love of politics and geopolitical interests and just kind of feeding that through the funnel of how do you talk to other people? How do you get people interested in what you want to say has helped me understand that communications is a good fit. I know that you were also involved in a whole variety of on-campus activities, whether it was working as an RA or a student rep to Wellesley's board of trustees. In hindsight, did any of these on-campus extracurricular activities equip you with skills that, whether they be hard skills or soft skills, that you think were useful to you once you got your post-grad job or jobs? Yeah. So I would say I was extremely lucky to have the opportunity to sit on the board of trustees at Wellesley as a student. That was a singular experience in my education because I was a 20-year-old. I My first board, I was, a, I was a sophomore. I just started my sophomore fall and it was the October meeting. And I showed up in sneakers and a t-shirt, which is not the dress code, I'll say very, very high level and was suddenly surrounded by some ex, an exceptional group of women who had uh, alumni who were doing really remarkable things and thinking at an extraordinarily high level. And it forced me to learn how to communicate to people who were my senior in every way and, and were more sophisticated in every way. And also find the white space, you know, understanding well, what do I have to give to this conversation if you're all so accomplished and so engaged and, and so aware. And I realized it was my own perspective. It was the perspective of being on campus. It was the perspective of being a student in what was it, 2017 at the time. And that was something that they didn't have and, and really wanted. And so that was a helpful guidepost for me in, in understanding how to communicate with people that I didn't have a lot in common with superficially and find the relationship and, and really cultivate real relationships that felt uh, became mentorships as, as I went through and by the time I graduated. And I would say the same sort of inversely for the, res- the, the RA experience was having to be a voice of authority, having to be a voice of, of guidance and, and help. And, oh, I don't know the, the answer to this question, but I'll find it for you having that practice is something that I applied very regularly in my job, especially as a junior member of a team where you're being asked questions that you don't necessarily know off the top of your head or, or, or is even outside of your expertise, but it's important for you to have and to hold to bring to your senior member or to, to remind at the end of the call. Gosh, as you described your experience, with the board of trustees at Wellesley. First of all, I can imagine just how intimidating that would be. But it reminds me of you describing what the experience has been like for you as a junior member at Weber Shandwick sitting in meetings with all of these senior people. So it must have felt familiar to you. 
It was. And that's something that is really has been a driver for me and a, and a, and a source of confidence for me is by the time I got into Weber Shanwick and I was sitting down and I, I had interviewed with the chief public affairs officer when I was applying for the job. And it, it was extremely intimidating because she's extremely exceptional and intimidating, but I knew how to get her attention. I knew how to keep her attention. I knew how to engage with her as somebody who is not a peer, but who is hungry and who was ready to learn and who could relate to her and what she was trying to accomplish. And that was something that if I hadn't had the experience at Wellesley, I never would have been able to do. What advice do you have for current students who may be putting more of their time and energy on their classwork and their GPA than they are on where they put their time and energy in their free time? Well, if you're legal, go to a bar because it just is something that I did not do enough when I was in school. I did not spend time with friends. I did not go out and meet other people um, my age in the way that I should have from other schools. I went Wellesley is very near Boston and being in a space where you're surrounded by other people in a similar stage of life is something that I kind of, I didn't maximize the way that I might have mostly just to make friends and to be in a cohort and to really feel the, the shared experience because you don't get the same opportunity to do it once you're in the workforce. And especially with COVID, it was it was very hard to, and we lost a lot of that early opportunity of being in a challenging spot, or we just worked, you know, flat out to deliver this project. Let's just go cool off. And I don't say go to a bar to drink, you know, water's awesome, hydrate or dehydrate, but being with your peers in a social setting is so important for professional development because it teaches you how to engage with other people and how to really understand where their emotions are, what they're feeling, how to, how to form closer bonds and bonds that will serve you when you are in the next crunch space. And it's actually the beginning. I'm so sorry to interrupt. I was going to say, it's actually the beginning of your professional network. It really is. Yeah. Even if you do nothing else, like I, I, some of my best friends were STEM people in college who like, you know, or math majors, um, and they're describing their day. And I'm like, that's awesome. But to not, you know, to still have their companionship and their camaraderie and their support is critical. Anything else in terms of how to spend their free time, the value I'm trying to lead you here, you may not, you may not agree, but the value of extracurricular activities. I think extracurriculars, um, in college are, it's a quality versus quantity thing in high school. I think you try to build a resume that's like, look at how many ways that I was engaged on campus and look at how many ways I'll be engaged on campus. And then you get to college and you realize you don't really have the same amount of time. The work is different, maybe harder, maybe just more sophisticated or or challenging in a different way. And you realize that you just can't be that flat out. And so I would say, pick one or two things that you can really dedicate your time to and that you can really feel like you left a mark. And for me, that was the board work. For me, that was the RA work. It wasn't, I did not join as many clubs or, or activities just because I knew that those were the spaces I could make the difference in. Those are the spaces that I could feel like I had a full experience in. And it helped me grow professionally and pre-professionally in having something that I was consistent in throughout 
you know, the, the last three years of school. And so if you're looking at, you know, your workload or you're looking at like, how many clubs should I join? One, two, um, and make the most of those. Great advice. Two final T4C questions, Esme. These are questions I try to ask all of my guests. I'd like you to share a time in your professional life thus far, and it could include whether it was working as a student rep to the board of trustees or whether it was working as an intern or your time as an RA or the Wellesley College Strategic Planning Committee or any of the roles that you've had since graduating, where you failed, where you face planted. And I ask this question of all of my guests because I want students to recognize that we all face plant. We all screw up and it isn't the end of the world. Oftentimes, it's an incredibly valuable experience. So whatever your biggest time where you had to learn that lesson, Esme, and the biggest takeaway here is what was the lesson you learned as a result of that experience? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say coming back to the Ukraine war and and coming out of that experience, I had been working, you know, solely basically on the, our response to, to that invasion and to supporting, we ended up having a distribution list that was almost 700 names of people who were getting that um, uh, from, from markets all over the world. And so I was coming off of that, that work, we were winding it down. There was sort of a status quo being established. And I came back to my manager for a check-in just about how I was doing. And I was, was actually feeling really good about it coming into the conversation. He's like, oh, I just managed this whole crisis response. Like we got so much great feedback from clients saying, you guys got there faster. You got, you gave me exactly what I needed to be counseled and do well. So I was feeling really confident. And I came in and I said, you know, well, what can I do to improve? How can I, how can I build on basically I was thinking, how can I build on the success? And my manager kind of said, well, you know, I, I'd love you to do your job. And I was like, what? Um, and I didn't say it. I obviously didn't, didn't say that with her, but I was flabbergasted because I thought, oh my gosh, what do you mean do my job? I've, I've been doing this great work. Like I've been getting this wonderful feedback. And she's like, yeah, but you're not doing, you know, I need, I need help with these projects. And it was the updating the, the databases and doing the administrative work that really is keeping the practice running. It was updating her on the day-to-day stuff that I had put aside. And she was obviously aware of my work on responding to Ukraine, but it was a huge lesson to me that as you get more work, as you get different work, as you get pulled into new things, you were hired to do whatever it was that the job the role required. And those need to continue to be your responsibilities, even as you're succeeding elsewhere, because otherwise you're not, you're not meeting the need that they needed when they brought you on. Wow. So here you were in effect crushing it on Ukraine, but all the other stuff, the kind of day-to-day stuff had gone by the wayside and that's totally understandable, right? Because there yeah. was this crisis 
that you are doing your darndest to keep on top of 24 seven. And yet you didn't think about the fact that all that other stuff still needed to get done. Oh my goodness. So how did you respond? Yeah, I, well, it was in the moment um, I was happy to be on zoom because there, I, I did need a moment to, to compose, but it was, I, I was sort of, after getting over the kind of flabbergasted of well, what do you mean? I'm not, you know, doing this job. I realized that she was right and that I hadn't been paying that attention. And it was really important because it was, that was the bread and butter. That is, you know, the work after the crisis. So it's, it's really critical to, to maintain that, that work. And it ended up making our relationship stronger as she kind of talked through like, well, what, you know, what is it that I, that I need to be delivering you? How can we retool this so that it's packaged in a way that you like, you know, what are your priorities as we're resettling? to to make sure that I'm giving you what you need. And that has made our relationship stronger. It's built more trust. It's it's made me more confident in other, you know, less monumental feedback just in terms of my growth, but still like important room for development feedback. I, I'm able to hear that better and take it in faster and, and adapt. Let me just say that I was already super impressed with you as a young professional and can see an unbelievably bright future for you moving forward. But what you have just done by sharing a recent, less than flattering example shows me, Esme, that you are a total rock star. The fact that you can own that and put it out in the public shows me the level of maturity and self-awareness and unbelievable potential that you have. So thank you so much for sharing that. Final question. If you could go back to college, go back to Wellesley and do it all over again, hopefully not during a period like you experienced with the pandemic, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, I would say listen to your gut. I know that you roll up to campus and you're 18 or 19 and you think, oh my gosh, I have no idea what I'm doing. This is, maybe the campus is enormous. Maybe it's just far away or, you know, you're away from family for the first time. And you think like, I really need somebody to to tell me what to do or to, to guide, you know, let me do it exactly as you did it and, and I'll be successful. And that's, First of all, not possible. So, so don't try. <laughs> but second, know that you already have tools that have led you to success because that's how you got there. And it's how you'll get through. I, I listened to parents also who wanted to share, and this was all good natured, their own joys that they had in school. And so they said, Oh, take this class. I had so much fun doing, you know, learning about this topic. And I got in there and it was, you know, miserable. <laughs> I was miserable for my first semester and it, and it messed up my credits. And I had, you know, it was, but I didn't know, you know, I have the paper, it's all fine now. <laughs> but it, it was a lesson to me that you know why you wanted to be there, you know what you wanted to do, even vaguely you know, listen to that gut, listen to that instinct, draw from what brought you joy in high school, draw from, you know, what you want to try that sounds new or interesting. And also if there's a red flag that says like, 
oh, this isn't for me. You know, I, I signed up for Arabic my first semester and I got in there and I got through one class and realized no way. And so like know when to just say thank you for your time as well, but, but trust your gut and trust your instincts because you know you better than anyone else. Oh, what a beautiful way to end. Esme, I want to thank you so much for your honesty, your insights, your courage, and your wisdom. This was fantastic. I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. If only every guest were able to speak with as much authenticity as you. Well, thank you, Andrea. Thank you for having me. And congratulations, 23. You guys earned it. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.